0: on this episode of the Evolve podcast. It's got to take all of us, it's got to take all the means at our disposal. Like there's huge business opportunities here as well. Yeah, But you looked at something like the Sustainable Development Goals, and it's, it's things like clean power for everyone. Governments are not going to make all that power, nonprofits are not going to make all that power. Businesses are going to have to figure out how to make enough clean power for 7.5 billion people. Everyone has access to good food. Again, businesses, huge opportunities. Who's going to make enough food for 7.5 billion people in a way that doesn't destroy the the environment and the ecosystem? Real problems are, are real business opportunities
1: welcome to evolve my name is brandon stover and i interview purpose-driven founders and leaders to educate inspire and empower your success in leaving an impact on the world the goal here is for the rest of us to ask the world's biggest questions build startups to solve them and live fulfilling lives in the process Hey everyone, welcome to Evolve. I'm Brandon Stover and today's guest has been the founder of 5 nonprofits and social enterprises and built the leading platform in cause-driven crowdfunding, innovative partnerships and social entrepreneur education. Since its conception in 2010, the platform has enabled more than 1,000 projects to raise over $12.5 million to make a positive impact in the world. Their projects have an outstanding 53% success rate compared to the 39% on Kickstarter and the 9% on Indiegogo. In addition to their technology platform, they created a one-stop shop for social entrepreneurs with accelerators, a social enterprise design course, live crowdfunding pitch events, a network community, and everything to help people design and launch social enterprises and impact projects. But this social entrepreneur doesn't stop there. With a love for building community using technology and culture, he has organized everything from dance parties and film festivals, youth journalism projects, and new media conferences, to co-working spaces and Burning Man theme camps. As a globally recognized leader in social entrepreneurship, he has spoken at events such as South by Southwest, powered startup accelerators for organizations such as the United Nations Development Program. He created the world's biggest online event for social enterprises, the hashtag Starting Goods Virtual Summit with 6,000 participants. He was recognized with awards and fellowships from the World Summit Youth Awards, the International Youth Foundation, Nexus Australia, the Social Enterprise Awards, and the Australia and New Zealand Internet awards. And to top it all off, his business is among the top 10% of certified B Corps. Today's guest is co-founder and CEO of Start Some Good, Tom Dawkins. Now growing up, Tom's father was an academic and his mother was in public broadcast, but both were heavy activists. From an early age, he was shown what it meant to stand up for things that mattered. Eventually, an opportunity rose for him to take up an exchange program allowing him to travel from Australia to Washington State. And during this time, he had a transformative experience that opened his eyes to the possibility that even as a young individual, people can make a difference. And before long, he was launched into a career to make the world a better place.
0: So I guess I was like, you know, lots of students in high school. I had no idea what I wanted to, to be when I grew up. I didn't really have a sense. I wasn't kind of terribly motivated. And then I stumbled upon this opportunity midway through year 10 to go on a student exchange program to Spokane, Washington. Well, that's where I ended up. That wasn't, I have to say, the moment I heard about it, I wasn't like, fantastic, I'm going to Spokane. <laughs> but I was. But I was blown away by the idea that I could get out of kind of this situation that wasn't really very fulfilling for me at the time, high school, go away somewhere else and I guess you know, take some time out to have an adventure and to and to get away from all that, all that stuff that was bogging me down midway through high school. And so I spent a year in the U.S., which would have been for sure a life-changing, formative experience, no matter what. But then I had a particular opportunity during that year to attend a conference in San Francisco called the State of the World Forum, and it was this kind of like post-Cold War powwow about what are we all doing here? To, you know, what are we all doing today now that the Cold War is over? Yeah, it's you know a bit before our time, but. But the Cold War was the preeminent, was like the only frame for every conversation about international relations. Sure. You know, that you couldn't talk about war and peace without talking about Cold War. You couldn't talk about sustainability and environmentalism <laughs> without talking about the Cold War. You couldn't talk about trade and fair trade without talking about the Cold War. And then suddenly it was over. And literally no one knew kind of what we were doing anymore. And there, there was no kind of agreed global agenda. And so that led to a whole series of conversations that ultimately kind of ended up with the Millennial Development Goals, which then became the sustainable development goals, which are on the wall behind me, as which you know serves as the world's to-do list. But this was during that kind of, you know, that phase where there wasn't an agreed to do list and what should our to do list be and what are our aspirations as a global civilization and so on. And so this this was an incredible five day event in San Francisco that brought together you know, seven different Nobel Prize winners, and Mikhail Gorbachev was there, and Ronald Reagan, and the, the leader of the Vietnamese Buddhists, and and Mbeki, Vice President of South Africa. And then they thought, well, gee, you know, if we're talking about the future, wouldn't it be nice to have some young people here? Yeah. But they didn't have the time, the inclination, the budget to do this, like, global search for worthy young leaders. So they, they do what, you know, they do the smart thing in that sort of a circumstance, and they partnered. And they partnered with an organization called AFS, which is an exchange student organization, to select from 28 young, sorry, 32 young people from 28 countries, but who were all conveniently located in America already. Mm. And so by some total like just that the series of kind of like random happenstance that kind of allowed me to have this experience kind of bewilders me really. You know, that someone had to like I only discovered student exchanges because someone had dropped a brochure in a corridor at school and I then got kicked out of class for <laughs> and picked up that brochure because I was bored. I never I might have never my school was very academically focused not very big on that sort of extracurricular stuff yeah. so they never would have like introduced that idea to me then i just happened to go with this particular program who happened to partner with this particular event and then they happened to select me as someone they thought would benefit from that experience and here i found myself kind of completely undeserving having not really done anything you know to to be a young leader or to make a difference. But nonetheless, I found myself in San Francisco having these incredible conversations and with these amazing people. And, and what was really profound about that for me was that they listened to me, hmm. was that they were interested in what I had to say, that they were interested in my story, despite me not really knowing anything about anything, that my perspective still had value. And so, and I think that's at the heart of all empowerment is feeling like your story has a value, your voice yeah. has a value, and, and it's impossible to feel like it has a value if no one's willing to listen. And so that was an incredibly empowering experience for me. I felt a a strong sense of, I guess, agency that I could make a difference. And I felt a strong sense of responsibility because it had been drilled into me. You're here to represent the youth voice. You're here to represent young people.
1: So this is what led you to starting several organizations, including Junior State America and the Future Leaders of Australia.
0: It was kind of in reflecting back on that experience in in the weeks immediately afterwards that kind of set me on the current course. Because what I realised is that I had just been the beneficiary of, of, of kind of a typical youth leadership experience. Yeah. You know, this and this is what youth leadership in inverted commas tends to look like. Still today, really, it looks like it's uh, tokenistic, it's haphazard, and it's biased towards wealth. Because I realised that while the youth delegation had this surface diversity, well, and real real diversity, you know, with boys and girls and black and white and you know, developed world and developing world. I realized that every single one of us had parents who could afford to send us to America for a year mm. on exchange, you know, that every single one of us was the global 1%, I guess, didn't have that language then. But, and it got me thinking a lot about what would it look like if we could give everyone the experience that I just had, yeah. if every person could know that their voice matters, if every person could have opportunities to tell their story, if everyone could have a chance to define the kind of future they wanted and then to participate in collective action to bring that future into being. And that's more or less what I've been working on ever since.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's taken a variety of different forms. I mean, the first thing I did was set up a chapter in my local high school of an organization called Junior Statesmen of America, which is kind of like playing, you know, kind of doing kind of play acting really at politics, but learning about, you know, practicing using your voice, practicing having opinions, getting involved in discussions about the future. I got back to Australia and there was no equivalent to that. in Australia, Australia doesn't have in the US, at least in my school in Spokane, there was a strong kind of uh, culture of, of, of student clubs mm-hmm. at high school, you know, yeah. politics clubs and socialist clubs and, you know, hunters and fishers clubs, all sorts of stuff, you know, chess and just anything. That, there was none of that at my high school, as I said, kind of if you weren't, you know, there was, there was sport and then there was studying and that was kind of like – that was meant to be life and so i set up an equivalent organization with the grandiose title future leaders of australia and that spread to have membership in 50 schools across sydney and we were holding conferences in the in the parliament house uh, for our state parliament and we were having this incredible experience of you know calling up and booking the actual like chamber Mm -hmm. you know the actual like congressional chamber and and holding hosting conference and we'd turn up and they'd expect to see a bunch of teachers and adults but in fact the entire thing had been organized by year 12 students for year 9 and 10 and 11 students and they were like no adult source, there no, like adult <laughs> supervision at all, but no one realized until we all turned up. Nice. Um, and so that got me started, I guess, with kind of making things happen. And that then led to a university student organization.
1: How did these experiences lead you to your first major organization, VibeWire?
0: VibeWire was about lev- initially kind of about leveraging technology to help young people express themselves on the issues that matter. And then that evolved into kind of supporting young adults 16 to 30 but supporting them to gain entrepreneurial skills to make a difference and, and as part of the work there I opened the first co-working space in Australia and a variety of other projects that sent youth reporters out on the campaign trail during the federal election and ran a couple of very early semi-early online culture sites or what we used to call back then portals mm. culture portal and so that you know I spent 8 years there yeah working really hard to raise money in order to support a bunch of projects that no one had done before that there was no evidence that they would work run and initiated by young people who had no track record or runs on the board (laughs) to prove that we knew what we were doing.
1: Yeah. What did working in a non-profit for eight years teach you about raising money for
0: innovative ideas? You might not be surprised to hear it was really hard to raise money for unproven ideas led by unproven leaders. But of course, that's what innovation often looks like and that experience has really I guess informed what we do now at Start Some Good which is all about trying to help emerging social entrepreneurs and leaders to get their ideas out there to gain you know to, to build the skills they need to, to build community to build to, to sell their idea to pitch their idea and then build the infrastructure they need to do that as well through our crowdfunding platform and part of that is just me having experienced what it feels like to try to be pitching genuine innovation because genuine innovation is unproven you can't guarantee how it's going to work. You can't point necessarily to specific impact metrics or so on yet um, until after you've been able to try something and collect those metrics. Yeah. And so one of the things I realized was what a truly pro-innovation ecosystem looks like. And it looks like what it looks like is a lot of failure, a lot mm. of people trying stuff that doesn't work. And then that is only possible because there's a bunch of people willing to support people with ideas not yet proven to work. And one of the key types of support you see in the commercial startup world is, is angel investors. Right, correct. People backing people that, and what I realized is there's no equivalent for social impact, that the world, like social impact investment is a world of all VC equivalents. You know, so what's, you know, kind of angels are investing their own money, able to investing from conviction rather than data, usually fueled by optimism and upside and curiosity and passion and so on. Whereas VCs, their job is to be more dispassionate, not just to do things because they personally are inspired. They need to, they're spending other people's money. And so they have right. to justify their decisions to those people. And so they want to be able to point to data and say, you know, this is why. We made the decision, you know, it stacks up. You look at the you know, we assessed it and we're smart and we're sensible and we decided it it makes sense. And I realized that funding for social impact is all that VC equivalent. It's people spending other people's money and therefore trying to be sensible and make decisions that can be justified. And particularly when it comes to social good, I think there's a real feeling of scarcity. No one feels like there's enough resources or enough funding. So no one feels like they have enough money to waste. And what tends to happen is that innovation is seen as wasteful. It involves mm. failure. It involves risk. And so people tend to gravitate. And this is very natural. You can understand you have limited resources. What are you going to do with your limited resources? you are got to back things that are proven to work. Right. You know, I know that if I put my money there, that's going to produce certain outcomes because that's already proven. Whereas if I put my money here, maybe it would make a, a big difference, but maybe it would be a complete flop. Can't take that risk. Got to put my money here every time. That's great, of course, if the world was very stable and very predictable and didn't change very quickly. But in a world that is evolving as fast as ours, it's never enough to just work with things that were already proven to work. We need to constantly kind of we need to build an ecosystem, a muscle, a culture that is capable of constantly reinventing how change happens in a world that itself is constantly changing. And so that's a big gap um, for the social sector like you know it, and Start Some Good is, is trying to fill that through crowdfunding these days through a lot of capacity building design courses accelerators a big focus on skill development as well as providing infrastructure but that's ultimately you know what we're trying to do is increase the pace of innovation for social change. Hey this is Brandon
1: Stover and you're listening to the Evolve podcast with Tom Dawkins co-founder of Start Some Good. In just a moment you're going to hear about Start Some Good and the heated race Tom had with other competitors as he launched his MVP. But first, I wanted to let you know that all the resources and lessons from this episode are available as a free worksheet at Evolve the.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right hand corner. All the lessons from Tom's lifelong career in social enterprises are super valuable, but they're only as valuable as the ones that you're actually going to put into execution. So that's why I distill all the action items from each episode into one easy to use step-by-step worksheet so you can immediately start applying these to your life and business. Lessons like how to fund innovative ideas, how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign, and where the biggest opportunities in social entrepreneurship is in the coming decade, and so much more. All these lessons are available at EvolveThe.World and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right-hand corner. That's EvolveThe.World, or you can follow the link inside the show notes of your podcast app. Now let's get back to the Evolve podcast with Tom Dawkins, co-founder of Start Some Good, as he shares how during his MVP launch of Start Some Good, he had some unexpected competitors launching at the same time and started to run up against some challenges bringing this to market.
0: Yeah, our launch was a bit of a disaster, to be honest. We didn't really know what we were doing either. We had planned, I guess we didn't do any kind of pre-PR. We had no kind of coming soon or... And I think that if I was to do it again, I would have done a bit more. I think one of the things that we often see this with crowdfunding is people scared to kind of declare their intentions. Yeah, worried worried that someone will instantly kind of steal their idea and run with it and and whatever. And you know, people mention that all the time with crowdfunding. What if someone? What if someone takes my idea? And I think that's actually a very low risk in in most in, in most instances. The much greater risk is that no one will pay any attention whatsoever. Right. That's the much more likely problem is that like desperate for someone to pay attention, not that people are paying attention and stealing your ideas, but that no one's noticing you at all. And I think that there's something very powerful in declaring what you're about to do that can attract interest and support and so on and and kind of put a line in the sand. But we were very, I guess, stealthy. And then we were unveiling on March one. So actually we're almost up at the anniversary yeah. and our plan was to release a press release that literally had the heading, you know, I forget the exact phrasing, but basically we're, we're resting on the Kickstarter for social change mm. line, you know, which is very, that classic where the X for Y. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Where the Kickstarter for social change, which we very directly were, you know, we we're very inspired by Kickstarter. We thought they were solving a very similar problem for, for creative entrepreneurs which is how do you get around the gatekeepers in a given industry? So for creative, you know, for, for musicians, that was a record label, say. It, not so long ago, you, you had to have a record label or else no one would ever hear your music. <laughs> Whereas, of course, today that's not the case. You may still want a record label, but there are places, there are ways to build relationships directly with listeners who like what you're doing and want to help you do more. And we thought that's what social entrepreneurs need as well, not just to, you know, not to endlessly bang their heads against the doors or the mm. gates of, of foundations and government and grants and all of that, but instead build a relationship directly with entrepreneurs. So, so that line really worked for us. What what really killed us a little bit at the start was that two days before us, another platform launched using the exact same line, we are the Kickstarter Association. What was extra annoying about that was that they weren't, in fact, the Kickstarter social <laughs> change. They were a different model that was trying to do like, which was which was declared illegal like six months later. They were essentially oh, wow. kind of a, an end run around the laws restricting online equity investing at the time. But instead of being equity, it was you would get a, a share of future revenue. And so anyway, it was an investment. It was more like a, I don't know what they call it, like an angel list maybe you're mm. for, for. Okay. for social, it wasn't a Kickstarter. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't kind of project focused, deadlines, the same sort of right. dynamics, the all or nothing model that we were using. But of course, with them launching, you know, they got that, the the traditional round of startup press, Kickstarter for social change launches. And then two days later, we're like, we're the real Kickstarter for social change. (laughs) We just ran this story. So we really, we really launched to a whimper, got very little media attention. But nonetheless, we just got on with it, I guess, from that point. It's certainly never been in kind of a hockey stick type trajectory. But for almost 10 years now, we've been working hard and plugging away and slowly building our community and still very ambitious about where we want to get to next. Yeah,
1: a big part of that was just sharing it around. As you said, like when you're first starting out, share that idea with as many people as you can. Is there some best practices or way to articulate and clearly state this to other people that you could share?
0: That's interesting. I mean, I think there's a few different ways. You know, the question is always. I mean, one of our real beliefs or observations when it comes to fundraising is there is no one perfect formulation hmm. because people are very different. Right. So I think people are often looking for that kind of like, what's the perfect Formulation, but it's always got to be who are you talking to? Mm. And then what are you trying to make them feel? And then we can start to think about how it is that you might achieve that. And I think a lot of people miss that, particularly purpose driven entrepreneurs are very driven by their own message, you know, very passionate about their message. Yes. And they can sometimes become a little bit monomaniacal about a, sp- a very specific message. And they can also get caught up in, and this is often a, a kind of a recipe for failure at a launch. Is they can get caught up in trying to convert people to their way of thinking. Hmm. This is why this matters. You should care about it. But the trick to I think successful launches, and really this is the business we're in these days, because most crowdfunding campaigns on our site represent a launch. And one of our key principles is convene, don't convert. Hmm. Don't spend any time, particularly early on. Like down the track, they may that may be an important part of what you're doing. You know, if you're a if you're a renewable energy startup, yeah, at some point you need to convince people to switch from, you know, from carbon intensive energy to to clean energy. So you will need to convert people as you go. But the launch is not normally the time to do that. And the crowdfunding campaign is not normally the time to do that. It's where you gather the true believers Hmm. who want to help you achieve that goal. And that normally means that, you know, by definition, they already agree with it. They already believe in it. And so the way they talk about that in the commercial startups is obviously looking for product market fit that you generally want to solve problems people know they have. Right. It's not impossible to create desires of course. Some companies are very good at that. I think Apple's really good at that. Like literally no one like I was in technology at the time, and literally no one ever said to me, God, Tom, I'm so frustrated. I really need a screen that's midway between my phone and my laptop. <laughs> but no one ever said that to me. And yet, you know, Apple was able to like, launch the iPod, iPad, and it was very simple. People were saying, like, oh, this is, you know, look at this. This is cool. I want it. And so Apple, you know, are in the business often of creating desire, but that's not normally where any of us want to be when mm-hmm. we launch. Um, it wasn't where Apple launched either, it's worth observing. They built up a skill and a capacity and a cachet that enables them to do that over time. Where you want to start, though, is figuring out who already gets it, hmm. who already knows they have this problem, you know, if they're in, in any instance, you know, who, if you're if you're publishing a book, teaching people how to add purpose to their company, who who's already thinking about that, who already wants purpose, but doesn't know how find those people rather than spending your efforts convincing people you should be embracing purpose, you should so one of the things I often preach is don't tell anyone – I, I violate this in the very sentence. I say you shouldn't ever tell people what they should or shouldn't do. I'm telling you that because you know I'm, I'm here teaching you the mechanics. But when you get out there, teaching, telling people you should care about this is a, like – Automatic turnoff. Don't, don't tell me what I should care about. But that is what a lot of people do, particularly for social purpose campaigns because they are you know – they're very driven by an often accurate belief that the key to making progress is that more people should care. Must care. And that but and that may be the job of your enterprise, but it's not necessarily the job of your startup, but it's not usually the job of the crowdfunding. Do
1: you have an example of someone who successfully launched a crowdfunding campaign to an initial community of people who were already getting the message?
0: We had an app that successfully fundraised on our site, I think last year, um, and it was essentially an app that gamified eating less meat. Okay. A kind of a and so you know building up streaks of meat-free days and you know it wasn't necessarily you don't have to go completely meat-free but the less meat you can eat and let's kind of gamify that and what have you and so the question so you know who's the market for that the, the ultimate market is people who eat meat but who you know are kind of open to the idea that they should eat less of it mm-hmm. and they want to build a, more of a habit I guess around that and they're therefore willing to but who do you imagine with a support who do you imagine invested in the crowdfunding campaign who were their first supporters
1: vegetarians
0: yeah vegans you know (laughs) people who literally don't need the app yeah but who already believe in the premise do we need to convince people to eat less meat yes we do this app might help but no one invests in someone to convince them to change their behavior no one's like oh my values are so (laughs) my values are all wrong so maybe i'm going to fund your crowdfunding campaign and then when you come back to me with your thing you'll like teach me the right way to think i mean right of the word, everyone thinks those current values are the right values, and so you've got to connect with people around their existing beliefs.
1: Once we have successfully connected with people that our crowdfunding campaign aligns with in um, their existing beliefs, how do we start expanding to the other audiences?
0: The other mistake people make is even if they get that, they tell only one story, focusing on one audience. This comes back to your original question. You know what's the right way of formulating it? Mm-hmm. There might be different ways of formulating it for different target audiences. And so one of the principles we teach people is this idea of different hooks, that a campaign has a core story, but that story can contain different hooks. What I mean by hook is that is kind of out of all the detail of this story, what's the one thing that you're foregrounding for a particular audience? So let's say I'm setting up a a social enterprise food truck and we're going to create job opportunities for homeless people by serving North African cuisine in a food truck in Sydney. (laughs) So Who should I be pitching this to? Well, obviously, I should pitch it to people who care about homelessness and so on. But that's but that's often where people leave it. Yeah, they go, I I'm doing it because I care about homelessness, and I've realised that jobs are the key to getting people out of homelessness. Not just providing services. You've got to give them opportunities to like get their life back on track through the power of work, the dignity and so on of work. So that's that's what gets me up in the morning. That's why I'm doing it. It's not that I'm like. I'm less passionate about maybe food or other things. That's that's what I'm all about, and so a lot of people will launch a crowdfunding campaign for something, and they'll just bang on about that thing. But that's just one hook, one reason why people can should believe. There's all sorts of other reasons why someone might resonate with this campaign, other than that they are deeply focused on providing employment to homeless people. They may love North African cuisine. Right. They may just think food trucks are super cool. I used to live in San Francisco. I love food trucks. There should just be more food trucks in Sydney. I'm just like you. Tell me you're launching a food truck. I'm interested instantly because I just I just truly believe more food trucks would make Sydney a a cooler place. And so through our coaching, what we often do is help people kind of architect these different hooks. Okay. We have a hook around food trucks. Where are the people who already care about food trucks? We have a hook around kind of helping people who are suffering homelessness. Who are the people who care about that? We have a hook maybe about North African cuisine. Would you like to see North African cuisine be more available in Sydney? That's a specific thing. There's another hook around social enterprises. You know, that there's people out there, myself included, who are just, just interested in social enterprises as mm-hmm. a whole model, as a whole approach to creating change. And so let's say, you know, I've got those four hooks. And then we'd say there's a geography hook. So while food trucks are interesting, they're more interesting if they're across the road. Right. In other words, they're more interesting if they're really local. So you may be launching a, a food truck in Liverpool, which you won't know, but it's like an hour to the west. It's in Sydney, but like miles away from where I am, not a place I ever go. No disrespect to anyone in <laughs> part of the world, just a little bit out of my way. So obviously I'm in North Sydney, and so obviously launching a food truck in North Sydney is more exciting to me than in Liverpool. So that, so the five hooks that we teach people to think about are the issue hook. So in this case, the issue hook is addressing homelessness through employment. the the geography hook. So that's Sydney, but more local is better. That's like I'm gonna be here on Wednesdays, here on Thursdays, here on Tuesdays. I'm focusing on those three those very local geographies. The team hook, not so relevant here. I'm not a very interesting story as a founder, you know, being like a white middle class dude. Say <laughs> if I had myself been previously homeless. And now that would be a great founder story. Mine right. is less less powerful in this instance. The how hook, how are you making a difference? So that's where food trucks come in. That's where North North African cuisine comes in. That's where the idea of social enterprise comes in. Mm. And then what we call the we hook, that's when people support you because they are part. That's like giving money to your, your, your university alumni association. That okay. kind of active identity. I am part of this community, so I'm paying into it. And so my job then would be to to design specific pitches for those specific audiences and then make sure I get them to the right audience. Mm. So the heart of crowdfunding really is that architecting of different hooks and then the matching of hooks to audiences. Mm. Because your hooks only as good in some ways, like audience and story are two halves of the same coin. Right. You've got to match them. You know, it's why... You can go to the movies and some people will laugh at the same point that other people cry. <laughs> exact same story on the screen, but we're reading it differently because we have different backgrounds, different values, different different lenses. And so the key for fundraising is to understand that people are diverse, that people care about different things, and then to really try and meet them where they are. Tell them about the thing they are interested in.
1: So now we have a bunch of different hooks to start spreading our messes. What should our outreach strategy be in order to raise money while simultaneously building a community?
0: I think what people don't realize is that there's two key conversions when it comes to any fundraising. There's converting attention, then converting money. Mm-hmm. And people focus, you know, people obsess on the last one, how to get people to give you money, but you of course can't get money out of someone if you haven't got them to pay attention. And it's really actually quite hard to even capture a moment of someone's attention. We're mm-hmm. all overwhelmed all the time by all the media flowing flowing. And when it comes to competing for attention, we're competing with everyone. Right. We're competing with coca-cola you're competing with the new york times you're competing with joe rogan you're competing with the nfl you know you're competing with everyone for people's attention so you better get pretty focused to you you can't take it people you can't take it for granted people don't owe you their attention you have to win the right to tell them about what you're doing and you only do that by actually being specific to them or, mm. or their niche their interest and in saying you know you love food trucks i love food trucks you're passionate about helping homeless people? I'm passionate about helping homeless people. You're you're interested in social enterprises? I'm interested in social enterprises. Yeah. What's so cool about the world today, though, is that you can find people in all these niches. You know, the world is so we're, we're all so connected and we all we all essentially tag ourselves up with the things we're into through our online behavior. Hmm. If you're if you're really into food trucks, you probably indicate that, I mean, maybe not. I don't belong to any food truck communities or listen to any food truck <laughs> podcasts, to be honest, but I have a latent passion for food trucks, as you're hearing. But in general, people who are really passionate about something will reveal that passion through their online activities, through the, the hashtags they use or follow, through the podcasts they listen to, through the Facebook groups they're members of. And that's that's really amazing. That's really different from, you know, 20 years ago.
1: Right? Can you share how maybe you attracted people to your organizations and start some good?
0: When I launched VibeWire that I was talking about at university, it was really important to me because we were doing work online that we weren't just a bunch of students from one university in Sydney. And so I thought, but we thought university students were our, were our you know, key target market initially. University students who like had something to say and were you know, active and wanted to be more active and people like us essentially at the time. So we're like, how do we find more people like us mm-hmm. somewhere else? And that was impossibly hard to do <laughs> in the year two thousand. Like finding you did. I mean, I don't know how, how active you were on message boards and so on at the time. Yeah, they were um, just starting learned, up. So, what was what was the first question people would ask when they would meet people online? No, ASL, mm-hmm. Mark was often, which is age, sex, location. Why do people have to ask that? Because they didn't know a single damn thing about the person that they were interacting with. Sure, yeah. There's this classic New Yorker cartoon that I often show people. It doesn't make any sense to people below a certain age. It's that old. No one on the internet knows you're a dog. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Because 20 years ago, you know, there was no identifying features. People would just be woof, woof, 72, you know, at hotmail.com or at (laughs) AOL or whatever. And you'd have to, like, individually be like, who are you? Where are you? What are you into? And then you'd have to, like, trust that they aren't. You know, they aren't a golden retriever on a laptop somewhere lying to you. Whereas, and so what we did at the time was, as I like to tell people, we used this nifty piece of technology, and then I showed them a picture of, of a greyhound bus. <laughs> a friend and I took the overnight bus down to Melbourne, spent a day in Melbourne sticking posters up at four university campuses, took an right. overnight bus back, and went straight back to uni the next day. It was a very brutal 48 hours, Yuck. but that was how we found our first collaborators in Melbourne, mm. so that we would begin beginning to build a more national. Melbourne and Victoria, you know, the, the second biggest city in, in Australia after Sydney, where we were. So, whereas today, of course, you don't need to do that. When we launched, when we launched Start Some Good, we launched with projects in six countries. Hmm. Uh, and that was just through our personal networks, through, you know, through social entrepreneurial communities and so on. And it's even a lot more developed now than it was then. And so the beauty is that you can get really specific you can get really tactical and focused on particular people that you want to hit with, up with particular stories. It takes that effort. It takes that focus. It takes being, you know, rather than just this kind of spray and pray approach that so yeah. many people take of, I just want to tell everyone about my story. But telling everyone is almost the functional equivalent of telling no one. Right. If you're not targeting the right people with the right story.
1: Hey, this is Brandon Stover, and you're listening to the Evolve podcast with Tom Dawkins, co-founder of Start Some Good. In just a moment, you're gonna hear about how the biggest problems we face now in our current society can actually become the biggest business opportunities. But first, I wanted to let you know that all the resources and lessons from this episode are available as a free worksheet at evolvethe.world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right hand corner. All the lessons from Tom's lifelong career in social enterprises are super valuable, but they're only as valuable as the ones that you're actually gonna put in execution so that's why i distill all the action items from each episode into one easy to use step-by-step worksheet so you can immediately start applying these to your life and business lessons like how to fund innovative ideas how to launch a successful crowdfunding campaign and where the biggest opportunities in social entrepreneurship is in the coming decade and so much more all these lessons are available at evolve the dot world and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right hand corner Let's Evolve, the dot world, or you can follow the link inside the show notes of your podcast app. Now let's get back to the Evolve podcast with Tom Dawkins, co-founder of Start Some Good, as he explains the opportunity social entrepreneurs have by addressing today's biggest challenges. In 2021, we've seen quite a paramount of a need for innovation from the pandemic to social issues to climate crisis. I and mean, you've said that each one of these is not only a social challenge, but a business challenge as well. Why is it of necessity for founders to create startups to address these, and what opportunities do you think that they get for doing so?
0: Right question, Brandon. I mean, I just think it's. So I think it's two things. I mean, one is that these are some very profound challenges that we have ahead of us. I think there's three relatively existential challenges before us: climate is one, democracy. Is another. Mm. I think when I was growing up it felt like democracy, you know, the end of history, it was kind of the era of end of history that you know yeah. liberal democracy, liberal capitalism and democracy have won the world and that's just the end of it. I can't tell you how much it spun it spins me out now that like Nazis are a thing again. I, I totally <laughs> thought that was, you know, that was the twentieth century. But I think democracy is is actually going backwards. We've been losing democracies for the last mm. fifteen years. I worry that, you know, my childhood might have been the peak if we're not careful. And that requires that we reimagine democracies. We see massive loss of faith in the democratic process and in democratic legitimacy, in that idea that you lose an election, but you're like, we'll get you next time in the US. That, that's gone. I think that's a, that's, that's a massive crisis. And then the third, I think, is inequality. And these all feed together, of course. Inequality is fueling, is, is, is breaking our democracy because while we all have one vote, we have vastly unequal access to, to power and to influence and to sharing our voice our voices have become very unequal and very matched with capacity. That inequality, I think, challenges our democracy. And then I think the loss of democracy is a big part of, it it challenges our ability to to make progress against things like climate change, because it's hard to make profound changes when no one can agree on what they are. And so I just think that those are too big and too important to to be considered just the work of not-for-profits or even just the work of governments. Yeah. Businesses are like, I forget the exact amounts, but like two thirds of everything from a resources point of view in terms of like all the money and capital and resources washing through the system. Governments obviously are big and have a huge chunk of it, but businesses are the vast majority of all the resources currently available to deploy in any way, shape or form. And so I just think these problems are too big to be left simply to the traditional community focused part of our society. It's got to take all of us. It's got to take all the means at our disposal. Businesses, I think, have been a key driver of some of many of these negative externalities, but can be a key driver of the solutions as well. And so that, I think, then flips it. That's kind of the, I guess, the moral why. But I think there's also a kind of practical why, which is like there's huge business opportunities here as well. Yeah. That you look at something like the Sustainable Development Goals, and it's, it's things like clean power for everyone. Governments are not going to make all that power. Nonprofits are not going to make all that power. Businesses are going to have to figure out how to make enough clean power for seven and a half billion people. Everyone has access to good food. Again, businesses, huge opportunities. Who's going to make enough food for seven and a half billion people in a way that doesn't destroy the, the environment and the ecosystem? Who's going to make enough power? Uh, good jobs. I mean, obviously we need businesses in terms of how you know the jobs they create. Smart cities. That's, you know, that's that's all public private um, partnerships. So I simply think if you look at something like the Sustainable Development Goals, it's just a list of like the, the biggest real problems in the world. And, and real problems are, are real business opportunities as well. So I think, and I think there's just incredible opportunities now to, to do well by doing the right thing.
1: Hmm. If we're able to take advantage of turning these major issues into opportunities through social entrepreneurship, where do you see social entrepreneurship taking our society now and then in the future?
0: where I think we are right now is I think of kind of four phases of social enterprise. The first phase was the niche and so that's been you know, around for decades. Social enterprises aren't new, you know, so they've been around for decades, mm-hmm. but it was a niche. People measured it in different, uh, you know, different, different ways, but generally about 15% of the market was thought to be the ethical consumer. And what that tended to look like is that people had to kind of sacrifice. They had to go right. their way, they had to pay more, you know? So what it looked like was we used to shop at a little organic supermarket, for instance. And so that was a pain, you know, it, was, it aligned with our values and so on, no animal testing and all organic and all the rest of it. But, you know, it meant we had to go out of our way. We had to go to the specialist little shop. We could never do our whole shop there. So, you know, it's a half shop and then you got to go somewhere else. It's, it's more expensive. That to me was kind of Social Enterprise 1.0. Social Enterprise 2.0 is competing in the mainstream. So what Social Enterprise 2.0 looks like is that I can go to the mainstream supermarkets now but buy Social Enterprise products. Mm. That they're right there on the same shelves competing with business as usual and often out-competing. And so, social enterprises are winning market share across a bunch of different categories, particularly in B two C consumer goods. And so, you see them, incre- you know, growing and winning market share because being a social enterprise actually provides practical, real business advantages right now, not just kind of in theory in the future. But it makes your marketing more effective because people are more passionate, and more likely to share your message. It makes your rec- it, it makes you better at recruitment because people want to increasingly people with options and talents want to align their talents with. Their values and their sense of purpose. So it means you can recruit better people, keep them longer, have them do better, more passionate work. Right. And I also think it aligns you around innovating on things that really matter. But what I think that adds up to is that we're ready when the big shift comes. When, when that policy change happens, it means we've already invented businesses that mm. are low carbon, that are low pollution, that are low, you know, negative externalities. So when that negative externalities are priced in, suddenly these products that in some cases are a premium product. Or, now, will actually be less expensive than in everything yeah, else. Yeah, they get the profit margin. Exactly. Because they won't have to suddenly pay for all these other negative externalities. We've already done the hard work, already sacrificed in the short term to do the right thing and to build businesses that we are, like, social enterprises already measure measure, or at least acknowledge or at least think about their negative externalities already. You know, that's kind of what it means to be a social enterprise is to, is to try to maximize the positive externalities and minimize the negative externalities. Um, and so I think phase three of social enterprise is when those tactical advantages, more efficient marketing, better recruitment, those become systemic advantages at a pricing level. When, when, so, when that, that shift happens, as it must, it's just a matter of time. At some point, we're going to be like, why are we not taxing the <laughs> thing we want, we want less of, carbon pollution, et cetera. And rather than taxing like employment, payroll tax and stuff is madness. Yeah. Like, you want people to have jobs, so <laughs> the things you want, tax the things you, don't, you want less of. We'll get there. And so that will create, a, I think, a systemic and almost unbeatable advantage and that people will have to get with the program, whether they are personally driven through their morals or not, just the economics will force businesses to adapt. And then I think we get to the final stage where social enterprise becomes the new norm. Mm -hmm. And we actually don't need a phrase, like social enterprise as a phrase disappears, because it just becomes the new expectation as to how businesses behave. Like, just have an expectation, which is not new, by the way. This is kind of like 200 years ago when businesses were local and responsible to a local community. They had to, you couldn't, you couldn't put sawdust in your bread or everyone would be like, I'm not shopping. You're like, what the yeah. hell, man? Yeah. That was the worst ever. You had to be responsible to your local community. you know, the, the, that, that local philanthropy, local leadership it was all seen as, as as part and parcel. And we're going to, I think, get back to that somewhat, but in a new way, at a new kind of globalized level um, in that final phase. And so where I think we are right now is in that second phase. And I think it's a little bit like uh, kind of an analogy that I like is, some, is like the Japanese car makers before the oil shock in the early <laughs> 70s. So in the early, for those who aren't, the potted history is in the early 70s, OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, formed as a, you know, oligopoly of oil producers and reduced the amount of oil they were exporting in order to ramp up the prices. And so almost overnight, the cost of petrol, gas, fuel doubled also. And of course, this was a massive crisis for all the Jap- all, all the American car manufacturers who had very inefficient vehicles because right. there has been no demand. Not, not, the market hadn't pushed them to make more fuel efficient vehicles. But the Japanese car manufacturers were already doing it, not because they were genius, future, you know, like predictors of the future who knew that the price of petrol was going up, but for local reasons. Mm-hmm. For the particular di- dimensions of the local market in Japan had already pushed car manufacturers to make smaller, more fuel efficient vehicles. And so I think that's where we are with social enterprises right now. We're, we're like the Japanese car manufacturers. We're doing the work. We're creating, you know, the, the, the vehicles, so to speak, the companies, the business models that are fit for the future. And then when that change happens, as it must, sooner would be better than later, obviously, suddenly everything's going to flip. And these people who've already done the work will be so far ahead of business as usual, which will have to catch up and start doing the work. Hmm. And so that's ultimately where I think that what needs to happen. Well,
1: before I get to my last question, where can everybody find out more about you and start some good?
0: Yeah, and thanks. would love everyone to... Check us out and connect with me. I mean, StartSomeGood, StartSomeGood.com is the best place. That's the crowdfunding platform. Our main course that we run is called Good Hustle, and it's a 10-week social enterprise design program. So it's kind of reverse engineers everything we've learned over 10 years of helping people launch into a series of, into a set of design principles, like things you need to get right in order that you will be launchable when the time comes. And so it's things like, you know, clarity on your impact model as well as your business model, as well as your target market, your pitch, all the way through to personal self-care as such an important part of, surviving excuse me the long-term journey of entrepreneurship so that's at goodhustle.online if you want to find that directly if you want to connect with me i love connecting with anyone who's doing social entrepreneurial stuff or aspiring to do so i would very much welcome you to connect with me on linkedin or twitter on my two kind of public engagement platforms and let me know that you you heard me on this on this show if you want to connect on linkedin i'll I'll approve all of those because i I love just being in in connection with anyone else who's on this journey and and there'll be something that you have to learn from from my updates. And I know that I'd have things to learn from you as well, because we all, you know, as I as I keep saying, the world is, is ever-changing. And so everything we've learned yesterday may not still be relevant tomorrow. We have to constantly learn from each other as we go.
1: Absolutely. Well, I'll put all of that in the show notes for everyone. Uh, my last question is, how can we push the world to evolve?
0: That is such a big question. That is the question. I mean, there's a few key pieces, I guess. I think... So ultimately, if I maybe if I could focus this on social enterprise and the role, I think, because I think I think only social enterprise is the key, you know, that it's not just we don't just need bit better businesses. We need a better style of capitalism. Mm. And frankly, you know, I think that people might say this sounds very socialist, but in fact, it sounds like how capitalism should work. I'm actually a really big believer in capitalism. and I don't believe that's what we've got at the moment. Mm. The way capitalism should work is that things cost what they cost and you decide if you're willing to pay for it but right now things don't cost what they cost. Mm. Most things are based on external, externalizing the negative consequences. So Coca-Cola doesn't pay to pick up their trash, doesn't pay to deal with the obesity epidemic, doesn't pay for the carbon intensity of aluminum mining and can manufacturing. So they get to just that so they get to essentially, you know, keep all the positive upside from the product, the money it earns while avoiding all the negative downsides that's broken as a system yeah and so that i've got nothing against coke nothing against I, honestly I don't, I don't care if you want to drive a, a petrol car for the rest of your life it should just cost ten dollars a gallon or, i'm not sure how gallons work to be honest anymore about you. but it should just cost a lot you that should just be a choice you make you know it costs a lot to keep a horse some people love riding horses yeah that's cool it just costs you know you just got to pay for the horse <laughs> yeah. um it should be the same with a petrol car, and if you, you know, and then and then people can make real decisions. How much do I want this? Do I, right. you know, a, a can of Coke could, should cost ten dollars. I love Coke. Doesn't matter. I'm going to pay for it. It's a real treat for me. It's one of my fa- good for you, all good. But then you're also paying for all the other things that need, you know, that need that will need to be done for that. And so I think if we can move to what's called true cost economics, that would change everything. Then that real like everyone acting in their self interest would actually would actually line up with what the with what the the world needs our self-interest would be that we all move to, to lower carbon intensive power because it's cheaper as well as cleaner mm. in the long run. Good food should be cheaper than bad food, not <laughs> the other way around. And so if we could, and so I think ultimately that's what needs to change. And I think that what social enterprises are doing, and that requires policy change. That's not something social enterprises can do on their own. So I think there's a limit. I think it's really important for social entrepreneurs and you know purposeful people to, to get on with it. It's what I love about, it's why I moved, I guess, into social entrepreneurship from activism and, and political participation I, I worked in politics briefly as an organizer and so on and you know i think politics has a really important role which is you know we need legislative change personally i was drawn towards i guess more doing what i could do with the tools i had at my disposal which mm. is entrepreneurship for me you know you, you you take what you can and and make the best impact you, you got without waiting for someone else to do it for you yeah and so i think that's important but i also think there's only so far that can go that that social enterprise alone can't make a wholesale shift of power generation. There is gonna to need to be, we need to put a price on things like pollution in order that the market can correct and that people's self-interest can line up with the reality of the world. There's no single social enterprise can, can really change things systemically in the way that we need. But collectively, through our voice, our activism, through harnessing our audiences, by building communities of people who share our values, we can begin to also exert some, exert some of that pressure on government that will hopefully lead to that big shift
1: yeah love that tom thank you so much for coming on the show today and sharing everything that you have
0: thank you so much for this opportunity and just big shout out to anyone who is doing that work of designing those models for the future designing those those positive positive impact companies i think that's just the most important thing we could be doing right now and i really salute you would love to connect with you and anything we can do to help you get your idea out there rally the resources you need and and ultimately make a difference it's what we're here for
1: That was Tom Dawkins of Start Some Good, the leading platform in cause driven crowdfunding, innovative partnerships and social entrepreneur education, which has enabled more than a thousand projects to raise twelve point five million dollars to make a positive impact in the world. That is an astonishing amount, and I am so grateful for Tom sharing the best strategies for crowdfunding today that made those 1,000 projects successful. I thought it was particularly helpful how much he emphasized understanding who your audience is and how to start crafting your message for that audience so they resonate and become champions of your cause and business. Now, if you want an easy-to-use resource full of all the lessons from this episode, they are available as a free downloadable worksheet at EvolveThe.World and clicking on the worksheet button in the upper right-hand corner. You can also find all the show notes and transcripts from this episode at evolvethe.world slash episode slash Tom Dawkins. Thank you for listening and joining the Evolution Revolution. If this episode was impactful for you, then share it with a friend, because pushing the world to evolve takes more than just you or I. Until next time, my friends, keep
0: evolving.